This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for July 29th, 2019. The U.S. has probably the most liberal gun laws in the world, but those laws can be quite complex. In this show, I'll talk to a lawyer who specializes in what you should do if you have or use a gun. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up on today's podcast. The demographics are very different. Uh, Most of our gun homicides in the U.S. occur in roughly six or eight of our major cities. Mm -hmm. If you remove the crime statistics of those major cities, the U.S. has a gun violence rate comparable to what you would call other developed countries. Paris is an enormous city. It's got about 15 or 20 percent of the population of the whole country of France. It has far more crime than the rest of the country. There are areas where they don't see a crime from one end of the year to the other. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of the people who support me on Patreon, especially the anonymous donor who signed up since the last podcast. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. That helps me to devote more time to finding interesting guests and doing research. If you think you could do the same, there's details on the website and at the end of this show. Back in episode 107, I talked to David Dayen about the economics of vaping, particularly the huge expansion in the market reach and the valuation of the market leader, Juul. At the time, we noted that Juul say that they're a healthier alternative to smoking. Even if that isn't healthy, it's healthier. They're saving people from the worst effects of their addiction. But the suspicion was that, although they deny it, Rather than reducing the number of smokers, they're targeting children to expand the number of people who are addicted to nicotine. Some information that has been uncovered since then doesn't exactly reassure the people who might have doubted their word. Documents presented to the House Oversight Subcommittee on Economics and Consumer Policy show just what Juul has been doing to not target children with their products. Let's be clear here. The suspicion is that Juul, now owned by the same company that makes Marlboro cigarettes, is trying to get children addicted to nicotine before they can make a mature decision as to whether that's something they want in their life. Research shows that almost all smokers who get addicted to nicotine do so before the age of 18, and the small portion who take up smoking as adults are much more likely to quit quickly and find quitting easy. Lifelong smokers start as child smokers. And those documents show that Jewel knows this and is determined to exploit it ruthlessly. For example, Jewel spent $134,000 sponsoring a five-week holistic health education summer camp that targeted kids as young as eight years old. 
They did it under the cover name of the Freedom and Democracy Schools Foundation in exchange for access to data collected about the kids at the camp, including assessments of their general health knowledge and their attitudes towards risky behaviours. Jewel is also offering 10 grand to any school that will teach a curriculum that it has devised. The agreement requires school districts to provide dates and times of the classes so that they can be observed by so-called dual consultants. So not only are lessons being turned into cheap advertising for the company, they again get to collect data about their target customers, the better to target them in future. I wonder how many parents would consent to making their kids into unpaid research subjects in the drive to get them addicted. On top of all of that, Jewel spent large amounts of money with a company called Grit Creative, hiring them to hire social media influencers to subtly promote their product. It's clear that they made no effort at all to restrict that promotion to over-18s. It's also clear that Grit Creative have a speciality in promoting products aimed at the teenage market. So what to make of all this? I'm sure that some people disapprove of vaping nicotine, an addictive substance, on principle. I can understand that, but I don't agree. If an adult makes the choice that they want to do that, or smoke cigarettes or smoke marijuana, I can disagree, but I think that's their right. But marketing addictive products to children is a different matter. Children are not allowed to smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, have sex, sign contracts or make other decisions because there's good evidence that they're not sufficiently developed to make a mature assessment of the consequences. Getting addicted to nicotine via vaping is clearly in the same league particularly since we know that if they get addicted as children, no matter how much they want to, they will find it much more difficult to kick the habit later in life. Jewel might argue back, I don't think they would say it in public, but it's clearly what they're thinking, they might argue that their business model doesn't work without getting children hooked, because very few people take up nicotine as adults, and the few who do mostly quit. Well, that's their problem. People who make photocopiers, pagers and cassette tapes have all seen their once profitable businesses evaporate. Altira, the tobacco company that bought out Juul, is free to get into any market it chooses. But it is evidently in the public interest, and in the interest of children, to prevent them from being targeted in the marketing of addictive products. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Andrew Branca. Andrew is the author of a book called The Law of Self-Defense, The Indispensable Guide to the Armed Citizen. He's also a lifelong NRA member, and he's a lawyer who consults on self-defense law right across the US. Uh, Andrew, your expertise is guns, I think, and self-defense. Give me an idea, maybe, what you tell all of those consulting clients and earn a lot of money telling them. Can you tell us that for free, briefly? 
Well, unfortunately, by the time people come to me, uh, all my cautionary advice is usually uh, not very useful because they've gotten themselves into legal trouble already. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of what we do, of course, through my book and through our courses of instruction is to teach people what they need to know to not get in trouble in the first place. And the first rule of that process is, uh, you know, avoid trouble at nearly all costs. The the legal consequences of getting engaged in a confrontation, even if you win the physical fight, are typically rather devastating uh, and almost never worth incurring uh, unless the stakes are genuinely very high. Um, I tend to agree with you. That's an incredibly conciliatory thing to say. And normally, trouble isn't worth the trouble. And I'm wondering how that sits with you being clearly a pro-Second Amendment person, a member of the NRA. Doesn't that sort of go against that? Oh, no, of course not, because sometimes it is worth the trouble. Not often, but when it is, it's very much worth it. Uh, so, for example, as you mentioned, I'm a, a member of the NRA. Uh, I'm an American gun owner. I carry a gun for personal protection every day. I have my entire adult life. I've never needed to use it. I've mm -hmm. never come close to needing to use it. Uh, but similarly, I wear a seatbelt in my car. I've never been in a serious accident. That seatbelt's seat never been necessary to save my life. I keep a fire extinguisher in my kitchen, have for decades. I've never needed it to put out a fire. But you never know when the time might come when those life-saving devices, whether it's a gun, a seatbelt, or a fire extinguisher, might be necessary. We don't make that decision about the timing. We don't choose when there's a fire in our kitchen. We don't choose when, when another driver is going to crash into our car. And we don't choose when some uh, criminal is going to try to kill or maim or rape us. They have the privilege of choosing the time, place, and manner in which we're attacked. And then all we can do is respond. Now, hopefully, it'll be circumstances in which you can safely retreat from that confrontation, in which case that's what you should do. Mm -hmm. But if that's not an option, well, then what is your option other than using force and self-defense? Uh, what I generally tell people is my personal perspective is there's very few things I'm willing to use force over, particularly deadly force. And I, as I said, I carry a gun on my person every day. Um, the only things that readily come to my mind are my life or the life of my family. Um, but that's about it. After that, the list gets pretty short. Uh, there's certainly no piece of property in the world that I'm prepared to die over or to kill over. Uh, but if it does come down to my life or the life of my family, then I very much do want to have the tools necessary to protect that life. Andrew, I think anybody listening to you will think that you sound like an incredibly rational and reasonable person and, and somebody who wants to be very prepared and to do things right. I know that the NRA is quite involved in gun training, but given the number of gun owners in the US, just off from your own experience, what percentage of gun owners in the US are properly trained to use their gun? Well, I think that's a, a complicated, multifaceted question. Uh, the truth is the vast majority of American citizens who use guns for purposes of self-defense, perfectly lawful self-defense, have effectively zero training mm -hmm. in the defensive use of that firearm. Uh, some of them may have taken a very, uh, what I would consider, and I should mention I'm a firearms trainer myself by certification, mm -hmm. although I, I haven't done it in many years, uh, but in terms of formal training, it, it tends to be rather minimal. Nevertheless, the overwhelming majority of those armed citizens are successful in defending themselves and their family. The truth is 
using a gun's not that complicated. You don't need to be a special operations military soldier uh, to use a gun effectively for personal protection. Uh, the distances are not great. Uh, if you have situational awareness, you have some some awareness that a problem may be coming and you can either flee or if light's not possible, prepare to defend yourself. So it's relatively unusual for a successful case of self-defense in the U.S. to actually involve someone who has a great deal of formal training. Most people don't and yet are successful anyway. Well, well maybe, to, maybe before, Andrew, maybe before we look at the training in actually using the gun, just basic training in terms of storing a gun and ammunition safely and securely, would you acknowledge that there's a very high percentage of guns that are stored in a way that you could have to, that you'd have to describe as irresponsibly? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't agree with that statement because the the actual outcomes don't back that up. Uh, accidental uh, shootings or, or injuries from guns in the United States uh, gets lower every year. It's at the lowest point it's been at in, in decades. So if people, unauthorized people, were routinely firing guns, uh, finding guns, I should say, um, and making use of them to cause injury, we would we would see that statistic, but we simply don't. Uh, well, course, I've, I've actually got do, I've uh, actually got that statistic. You're right; it's relatively rare, but it's more than ten times more common than any other developed country. Well, I, I, I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm afraid I would have to suggest that it's unfair to compare the United States to any other "quote unquote" developed country. Uh, the the numbers of population are different, the culture is different, the demographics are different. Uh, I just don't think they're they're comparable scenarios. Do you think that, and first of all, I'm sure that you can come up with examples, and I'm sure they exist, I'm sure they're true, that you can find examples where an individual defended themselves with a gun, either by using it as a threat or by shooting or possibly even by killing someone. And for that person, there's clearly an individual benefit. But is it possible that that doesn't aggregate to a societal benefit that the that although you can find individual benefits and ones that are very important that the aggregate for society is a steep cost it's possible but i don't believe it's true uh, so <clears throat> i don't think anyone would deny that guns have negative externalities uh, human beings do bad things with guns from time to time far more often than we would like uh, so the question is not whether or not guns can cause harm, negative harm, uh, anti-societal harm. They certainly can. The question is whether or not that harm is offset by the good that they do. Uh, and we have statistics here in the U.S. where the numbers of people every year who are defending themselves lawfully with firearms is in the millions, at least two million a year. Uh, so the upside How is of that defined successfully defending themselves? They were faced with a criminal threat and they ended the threat by having the gun, displaying or firing the gun. Now, of course, the vast majority of that times they don't actually need to fire the gun. Displaying it is enough generally for the bad guy to realize, well, he brought a fist to a gunfight and he runs away from the fight and the law abiding person does not pursue as they should not pursue. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, their life, the, the threat against them has been neutralized by the fact that they had that gun. Uh, if that woman who was facing a rapist had not had the gun, the outcome would likely have been a rape. Instead, it's a rapist running away. Um, are, are you sure that's true? Because it seems to me, and, and you mentioned a number of uh, successful defenses, I think that's extremely problematic to 
define and I think you know I'm not necessarily disputing what you're saying but I think that it rests on the definition and for a situation and the enormous number of guns that exist in the UK in the US particularly in the hands of people who have as you say very little training isn't the cost of that enormous well, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about the need to define terms, you'd need to define costs. Well, the, the costs are very clear in that the number of handgun deaths in the US is many orders of magnitude higher than in any other developed country. And the number of handgun deaths far and away outstrips all homicides of all types in any other developed countries, even when you're just for population. Sure. So first, I would again suggest it's inappropriate to use other developed countries as a comparable to the U.S. for the many reasons I've already listed. Uh, second, uh, why? Why? Hold on. That, that, that seems a little bit unusual. It's possible to compare all sorts of statistics internationally. There's no reason why you can't do that for gun ownership and use and self-defense and crime statistics as well. Well, I didn't say it wasn't possible. Oh, and uh, and said, it's validly possible. Sure. Why inappropriate? Let's drill down on that a little bit. Sure. Well, for one example, the demographics are very different. Uh, most of our gun homicides in the U.S. occur in roughly six or eight of our major cities. Mm -hmm. If you remove the crime statistics of those major cities, the U.S. has a gun violence rate comparable to what you would call other developed countries. So the problem is not distributed homogeneously across the U.S., there are other factors playing a role in how these guns are being used. But in it's, it's not it's not distributed homogeneously, homogeneously uh, in other countries either. And for example, Paris is an enormous city. It's got about 15 or 20 percent of the population of the whole country of France. It has far more crime than the rest of the country. There are areas where they don't see a crime from one end of the year to the other. That's kind of normal. But the level of crime, both in those rural areas and in Paris, that is deadly, is enormously lower, isn't it? Well, I, I don't know what the crime is in Paris or, or France, so I, I wouldn't deign to speak to that. Uh, I would suggest that in a country like the U.S., one major differentiating factor is we have more guns in this country than we do people. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of people. Uh, and those guns don't just turn to dust. They exist. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the gun killings caused in the United States are caused by, you'll be surprised, criminals who are already no, not, not true. Well most of them are suicides. I'm sorry. No, most 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 gun deaths are suicides. Uh, did I say gun deaths? I, you I said thought killings. I said. Uh, uh, you mean killings uh, of other people? Yes, of course. Yes, because <laughs> suicides and murders are not comparable situations. Uh, correct. Yes, I'm speaking of unlawful uses of guns against other people. They're being committed by criminals who already are legally prohibited from having guns and have them nevertheless, mm -hmm. which is not surprising because these are people who are obviously uh, prepared to commit other crimes like murder, aggravated assault, rape. So these are not people who are going to obey gun laws. They don't obey gun laws. We know this already. So simply saying that people can't have guns does not keep guns out of the hands out of the criminals. It merely keeps guns out of the hands of the law-abiding. So I fail to see how it's beneficial to society to concentrate the private ownership of guns in the criminal class while we strip guns away from the law-abiding people who don't use them to commit crimes. 
Um, I actually think that a lot of people who are on the anti-gun debate di- uh, side of the debate disagree with you on that. And I think you're actually probably right. Because you could say if we lived in a what, different what would, uh, what universe... What would they disagree with? It, they would disagree on, on the fact that you could take away guns from criminals or at least drastically reduce the amount of uh, guns they have. And I think you're right that it's the case that, you know, if we lived in a parallel universe where there were no guns in the US, then there would be obviously no guns in the US. But moving from the current situation to that is very difficult. Moving to a situation where you have a country that has little or no guns, that's not something that's possible. Guns are incredibly durable and and that's not likely to happen. So it's kind of... Guns uh, effectively... Uh, last forever. Yes, yes, yes. So anti-gun campaigners who are wishing for a situation where there were few or no guns in the US are essentially wishing for something. They're wasting their time. They're wishing for something that's impossible. So if if we accept that the guns exist, it will continue to exist in private hands. um, And we've already made it unlawful for criminals to possess guns for any purpose, much less illegal purposes. What I fail to see what the next step is that would uh, mitigate the problems that you're identifying. I, I I agree. Actually, I fail to see those those steps as well. I at least fail to see how they can be done easily because it's an incredibly difficult uh, thing to do. However, thanks to our friend Wikipedia, I've looked up the list of homicides per hundred thousand intentional homicides per hundred thousand inhabitants. The United States is at about five point five. It is far and away the highest of any developed country. Most Western European countries are. Are somewhere under one per hundred thousand, so it's it's maybe a sixth or a seventh of the U.S. rate. So you can see why people who are anti gun. I'm sorry, but how many how many of those were committed by by guns that self animated and went out and killed a human uh, being? Uh, clearly, absolutely none. However, in most countries in Western Europe, it is very significantly difficult for a criminal to get a gun. It's not impossible. But it is very significantly different, difficult, and most criminals do not have a gun. And of the criminals who sometimes have a gun, they mostly don't have a gun most of the time. So that is relevant to the extent that if the wishes of anti-gun campaigners came true that might be a better situation. But nevertheless, I think you're right that those wishes aren't going to come true. So right. it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a moot if, point. If wishes for horses, uh, you know, but in, in America, criminals are aware they're not legally permitted to have guns. They do it anyway. Yes, but the, uh, the, the, the massive a, number of legal guns and the very loose regulation of that makes it very easy for them to, for criminals, albeit illegally, it is easy to get guns, whereas it's not is, it is illegal and also difficult in Western Europe. And the, well, it's difficult in Western Europe for both criminals and law-abiding people to get guns. Exactly. Yes, we agree on that. And so there's a cost to that paradigm. I'm not sure that there is a cost. And again, we're in in a wish fulfillment situation. But the typical uh, I mean, homicide violent crimes rate, do commit. Violent crimes do commit take place in Europe, yes? Yes, absolutely, but at a drastically lower level. But what I'm saying, and trying to stay in the realm of the possible, the NRA has campaigned really very vigorously against measures that don't even approach restricting the amount of guns, but, for example, requiring 
mental health checks, requiring background checks and requiring training, wouldn't it be a sensible thing for the NRA to say, hey, we offer gun training. Many other people can offer it as well. We'll set up a minimum standard of gun safety. That's to say how to store and clean and uh, a gun and also how to use it. And if you want to get a gun license, you pass a basic test. You mentioned seatbelts earlier. You got to get a, pass a test to drive a car. A gun can be just as deadly as a car. <laughs> Wouldn't it make sense to put the same imposition on owning a gun? Well, you raised a great many uh, policy proposals, and there's there's different objections to each of them. So I don't know how much time we have. I would suggest that your analogy to the car is a very poor one, uh, for reasons I'll explain. Uh, one is in America. Again, I don't know how things work in Europe. Uh, in America, you do indeed need a driver's license to operate a car in a public way on mm-hmm. a public road. You do not need any kind of license of any sort merely to own Sure, a but it's, it's of limited use if you can't drive yeah, in it. In America, we have a lot of regulations that are required to own a gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be background checked. Uh, and by the way, in terms of mental stability, anyone who's been adjudicated mentally defective in any way or a threat to the public or a convicted criminal is prohibited from owning a firearm. But, so, but that prohibition is ineffective. Well, I'm not sure what you mean by ineffective. Well, for example, the gun show exception, that anybody can show up at a gun show and buy a gun without anybody checking whether they're a felon, whether they're mentally defective and so forth. No, that's, I'm afraid that's not true. Why not? Uh, If if you want to purchase a firearm in the United States from a gun seller, uh, you have to undergo in all 50 states a federal background check. And if I want to, you're referring to something that's called the gun show loophole. Yes, that's a that's a made up term by the gun control advocates. There's no such thing as a gun gun show loophole. Now, it is of course true that uh, one person could privately sell unlawfully a gun to a criminal or somebody who's mentally unstable, Mm -hmm. but that's a crime. That's already illegal, and you know laws against criminal conduct do not stop people who are prepared to break those laws. How many people are typically convicted of breaking of that particular uh, crime each year? Uh, Unfortunately, the number is very low because for some reason, the authorities do not want to pursue prosecutions of those people. Would you you advocate that, uh, a rigorous enforcement of that? Absolutely. Unfortunately, often the prosecutors are, are dealing with situations in which a prosecution might be perceived as Um, unattractive. So, for example, one of the most common ways that criminals obtain guns unlawfully in the United States is from a gun store Mm -hmm. where a background check is done. But the criminal doesn't go into the gun store. The criminal gets a girlfriend who has Mm -hmm. no criminal record. Mm -hmm. And she goes into the gun store, lawfully buys the gun and gives it to the criminal. Or he has his mother go into the store and buy the gun and give him the gun. The mother underwent a background check, but of course the gun ultimately went to the criminal. That's what we call in the U.S. straw purchases. Mm -hmm. They're completely unlawful. They're unlawful under federal law. It's a 10-year federal prison sentence if you're caught. But but again, almost no no enforcement. Because the prosecutors don't want to prosecute the girlfriend or the mother and put them in federal prison for 10 years for doing this. Okay. Would you accept that the NRA is a very powerful lobbying organization? It certainly hasn't been lobbying for stricter enforcement of that law. No, it does. Absolutely. 
the the NRA is 100 percent backing prosecution of unlawful straw man purchases. I want to look at one other topic. You might be aware of what's called the Dickey Amendment. For people who don't know what it is, it's a requirement that the Centers for Disease Control don't in any way advocate, use their uh, federal funds for advocating uh, for gun control. But that's typically worked out that it means that they're not able to study gun control or gun violence or how perhaps to mitigate it. That was something that the NRA lobbied for very heavily. Are you sure that's wise? Well, first of all, I disagree with your premise. There's a difference between advocacy and study. Mm -hmm. They're free. The CDC is free to study anything they want. The fact that we don't want them to use public funds to, to, to advocate certain political positions, well, they're not supposed to be a political advocacy organization. They're supposed to be a scientific there, there's, there's no specific law forbidding them from advocating a whole other range of political positions. That does seem to have put a chill on them to prevent them from studying in situations where the outcome would perhaps support gun control. Well, you'd have to ask somebody from the CDC about that. Uh, to my knowledge, there's no prohibition on them studying any gun initiative they want to, nor for any university or any other public policy organization in the U.S. There, there's no law in the U.S. against studying anything you want to study. The, the spending the Centers for Disease Control funds on studying, and uh, it has certainly been the there, case there that they have not. There are laws against spending public monies on political advocacy if you're a research organization. There are laws against that. But, that's sure, but, but they're not, they're not, they're not, there aren't specific laws issue by issue, except in this case. And this was something that was lobbied for very heavily by, uh, for, uh, by the NRA. Well, I would suggest the, the, the other issues need to catch up. It's not clear to me why you'd need one law per issue, but nevertheless. No, no, it should be a, it should be a blanket prohibition that public research organizations should not engage in political advocacy. And well, that's obviously the correct position, but you would agree that the effect of that has been that the CDC has not studied the effect of guns on society. Again, whether what they choose to study is up to them. I, I, I don't know what they study or don't study. CDC policy and practices are not my area of expertise. I know there's no law against it. If they wish to do so, they're free to do so. One other thing that I know that you've mentioned in some of your works is what's called the Stand Your Ground Law. Uh, for people who don't know exactly what that is, how would you characterize that? Sure. So unfortunately, the phrase stand your ground has become extremely politicized in America and uh, characterizes some kind of weird um, characteristic of uh, self-defense law. It's really not. It's a very straightforward uh, legal doctrine. Uh, but unfortunately, we get most of our news from the media and the media is mostly ignorant about the actual legal doctrine. So we get a lot of misinformation, but I can explain it quite simply. So imagine, for example, uh, you wanted a driver's license and there were five requirements you had to pass to get a driver's license. And then the government said, you know what? We think one of these five requirements is inappropriate or unnecessary or excessively costly. We're going to eliminate that one requirement. Now, the other four remain in place. Mm -hmm. So to get a driver's license, you still have to meet the other four requirements. What that change would not do is it would not entitle people who get driver's license under the remaining four requirements to drive around the public roads and run people over, right? All the normal rules for driving would still apply. Mm -hmm. All we've done is, re is reduce the number of requirements to get a license from five to four. Mm -hmm. Well, the parallel to self-defense is a claim of self-defense 
under American law, has five distinct requirements, what we would call five elements. One of those elements can be that you have a legal duty to retreat if safely possible before you can use force in self-defense. Mm -hmm. Most American states have taken those five elements and removed that one, that legal duty to retreat. That's what stand your ground properly means. We've taken the five elements of self-defense. The one that would normally require a legal duty to retreat, most American states have eliminated that one. The mm -hmm. other four elements still remain. Which are? So, uh, that you have to have been the innocent party, so not the aggressor in the confrontation. You can't have started the fight. Mm -hmm. uh, that the threat you're defending yourself against is a threat that's about to happen right now. So it can't be, for example, an offense that occurred previously or a future prospective threat. Uh, that the degree of force you're using is no more than necessary to defend yourself defend yourself, mm -hmm. uh, and that your conduct, your perception of the threat is a reasonable perception. So an irrational fear, for example, would not be an acceptable reason for self-defense. It has to be uh, a, a perceived threat that any reasonable and prudent person would similarly perceive as a threat. So those other four elements are, in summary, innocence, eminence, proportionality, and reasonableness. Mm -hmm. um, so all Stand Your Ground does is take away a fifth element. Uh, and by the way, that's the majority position in the United States. So about 38 states do not impose that legal duty to retreat. Only about 12 states still do. It would normally be the case. I mean, if you're at home, you don't really have anywhere to retreat to. Isn't that the case? Yeah. So even the minority of states that do, the 12 or so states that do impose a general legal duty to retreat, always have at least one exception to that legal duty, and that's what we call the castle doctrine. If you're in your castle, if you're in your home, you're relieved of that otherwise existing duty to retreat. They only impose that duty to retreat if, generally speaking, you're out in public. Oh, okay. So are you saying that the duty to retreat has been removed in these 38 states, even in a public place? Even in a public place, that's correct. And, oh, okay. uh, and removed is not quite the right word because about half of those states never had a legal duty to retreat in the first place. It simply... Whatever the previous position, the current position is that there isn't a duty to retreat. Is that wise? I, I mean, clearly that's something that you're in favor of, but do you, would you not uh, agree that that's something that if you alert people or you put into the public consciousness, especially with the phrasing stand your ground, that has the potential to aggravate situations that might previously have been tense and make them violent. So I, I think whether or not to impose a duty to retreat or to allow for stand your ground is a public policy question on which reasonable people can differ. Uh, frankly, I'd be fine with either position. Uh, I certainly advocate all my clients to, if possible, to safely retreat that they're uh, incredibly stupid if they don't take advantage of that opportunity to retreat. I urge people to retreat, retreat, retreat whenever it's safely possible to do so, regardless of what the law of that particular state allows. Mm -hmm. If you have a safe avenue of retreat and you don't take advantage of it and choose instead to get into a fight, you're an idiot. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you're giving the right advice. And I, I think maybe we're fumbling towards something agreement on this because somebody who stands their ground, they're at risk of losing, aren't they? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, what I always urge people to keep in mind is 
uh, both in because we're really talking about two fights, right? There's a physical fight, and then there's a legal fight that follows the physical fight. Sure, but um, I'm, I'm only and, focusing on the for the minute anyway. I'm only focusing on the physical fight. There's a ground. There's even if somebody's in the right and thinks they can win, there's a significant there's a significant risk they won't. Well, the risk's always greater than zero, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, which I don't is, care which makes it significant. Of, sure, I mean because the concept, the potential consequence is your death. Yeah. So the stakes are pretty high. And I don't care what kind of gun you have or what kind of martial arts training you have or what kind of military training you have. Uh, the, the risk of losing the physical fight is always greater than zero. Uh, so w- the question becomes, what are you prepared to die over? And what's your attitude towards some groups? I think, I don't know if they were associated with the NRA, but certainly pro-gun groups who raised money in order to give it as a reward or a prize to the first person who would shoot somebody under this law in some states. I've never heard of such an organization. Not sure it was an organization, but there certainly were funds raised. Doesn't that tell of a really a, a dangerous, hostile situation? Well, uh, I don't know what to say, except, of course, that I would find the prospect of awarding prize money to someone for having killed somebody lawfully or not to be despicable. Uh, now, there are organizations in the U.S. that are essentially kind of prepaid legal services where if you're involved in a confrontation and you've shot somebody and you're going to court because there's a question whether or not your conduct was legal, hmm. uh, that your legal expenses will be covered. Uh, that's no different than I can tell you as an attorney here in the U.S. There's lots of prepaid legal services for all no, different No, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this, that, that isn't uh, what I'm referring to and, and what, you're, what you're describing is, is far more reasonable. But my point really is towards the culture that perhaps the NRA don't intend to promote, but it certainly seems to exist amongst a large chunk of their membership or their support base, that there's an enthusiasm for shooting the bad guys that might be individually justified, but it's not something that makes society better as in a whole. You know, we're a nation of 350 million people. There's always going to be uh, small numbers of people on the fringes of society who have weird views about what the world should look like. I don't think you can hold anybody else responsible for their particular rules. Certainly, the, uh, to my knowledge, and I've been an NRA member for some 30 years, the NRA's never advocated for such organizations. Uh, and whether or not people want to read uh, something into something, I mean, there's lots of large groups of people, uh, all kinds of affiliations, whether it's national or political or religious, where they have fringe groups that do terrible things. We tend not to hold the core group responsible for the conduct of the fringe. Just to finish, Andrew, if somebody is in a legal difficulty, I said that we'd mention it, uh, if somebody finds that they have discharged a firearm, perhaps hit somebody, what should they do, number one? Uh, Well, my general recommendation as the first thing they need to do is call the police uh, and report what's happened. Uh, If they've done it in lawful self-defense, they're going to need to justify that use of force as lawful self-defense, and that means getting the authorities involved, Um, including, by the way, not just the police, but also medical services. Uh, It's better for everybody if the person you defended yourself against survives. You don't Mm -hmm. want that person to die. You want them to survive. Uh, Your only interest was in stopping them from continuing to be a threat. We have no interest in the person actually dying. That would be bad for everybody. 
Um, and then once you've called the police, of course, you'll need to retain an attorney. I, I'm not that attorney. I don't represent clients directly. My clients are all other attorneys. So my clients are the person or the attorney. My client is the attorney that person would retain. Andrew Branca, you put your position incredibly clearly and very eloquently, author of The Law of Self-Defense, The Indispensable Guide for the Armed Citizen. Thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Andrew Branca at Law Self Defense. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks to everyone who signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to research and finding guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's August 5th, I'll be talking to the musician and writer Gautam Ganeshan about the anti-vaccine movement. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.